Well, to me, this is a very inspiring time of year uh, to know what Christ did and what he still does for us. Even more importantly, we don't worship the dead Christ, we worship the resurrected Christ. And this year, it does happen to fall, uh, a Wednesday Passover, so we have this coming Sabbath tomorrow afternoon would be the time when he was resurrected. And then Sunday, of course, would be the day we begin to count 50 toward Pentecost from, because that's the day he ascended and was accepted of his father as our wave sheet. So these are momentous times, especially with it falling the same days of the week this year. I, I always look forward to the years that that happens, and one of these times maybe it will be significant. It might be significant this year. It's certainly significant in marking another beginning of a year in which we have opportunity to pursue God, to search for Him, to look for Him, to recommit to Him in every way. Now, I started the sermon this past, well, on the Holy Day, about Jesus Christ, about what He went through, and we re reviewed some of those scriptures and how He was misused, abused, and deserved none of it. He had done nothing wrong. The only thing that He was doing was taking on our sins, the sins of the whole world. So in one sense, there was plenty of excuse to do what they did to Him, except that he had done none of that. He was suffering the penalty for us. And I focused considerably on what his reactions were, what his attitude of heart and mind was, that he was falsely accused, and yet at the same time, he never answered with rancor. He never gave return to evil for evil or smiting for smiting. Uh, he was willing to take whatever was dished out. And he told us in the Sermon on the Mount to turn the other cheek, didn't he? Uh, that is something we have difficulty doing in practice and application, isn't it? It is just automatic. It is absolutely natural to bristle when someone brings something against us. Especially, it seems if we're not guilty, and perhaps if we are guilty and ashamed, we bristle in defense anyway. We just simply don't like anything negative turned on us. What is it about human nature that is willing and happy, it seems, to cast negative light on others? That, too, comes quite naturally. But when it's turned on us, we're like a deer in the headlights. Any way to get out away from it. Any way to escape that light being shined on us. I want to start tonight because this is, this I think will turn into a series and it's unfortunate in a way that everyone isn't tuned in tonight because they'll hear You'll hear this, and then they'll hear it all tomorrow, and then they won't hear it all Sunday, and then they'll hear it all again Tuesday. But uh, it will be on the Internet, and they can get the tapes if they wish. There needs to be some penalty for not being here. <laughs> Pass that along, would you? 
No, I, I understand. There, there's some, some simply that because of finances or health or various other issues simply cannot be here, and, and that's understandable. But it's nice to be here. I appreciate being here myself. But let's go in that light. I had some scriptures I didn't get to Sabbath, and I, I made comment on that at the end. There simply wasn't time. But I'd like to cover a few of those this evening to start out with and then get into some more material um, to augment it. I did give a series of sermons. I think it was only two, maybe three sermons some years back in CGG at the feast. Some of you who were there might remember uh, I entitled those God's Standard for Us. And... Uh, I want to cover some of that same material. Most of you have probably not heard those sermons. They are available uh, through Shirley and Al on the tape program. And I doubt if they are on the website yet. They might be, but I doubt it. But eventually we hope to have them all on there so people can go through. But I think the, the uh, information basically I introduced on the first Holy Day, or at least the edge of it, uh, and we'll go to some other areas and cover much of the same material that I covered in those sermons at the feast several years ago. But uh, it's as alive and as needful, perhaps more so today, than it was then. But let's go to First uh, Peter right now, 2. I think this has already been read. Uh, but I, I want to pick it up here in the light of what we discussed about Christ. Peter is discussing slavery and those who are masters and even slaves within the church. We don't have that situation today. But uh, the principle that's brought out here is certainly applicable to us as servants of Christ and as servants one of another. <clears throat> verse 19 of 1 Peter 2. For this is thankful, well, let's see, verse 18. Servants be subject to your masters with all fear not only to the good and gentle, but also to the presumptuous uh, or nasty, we might say today, those who weren't, weren't good masters, but who were mean. It says, be subject with all fear. For this is thankworthy, <clears throat> if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. You know, sometimes when we're accused, the accusation fits. And if that shoe fits, we should put it on and wear it and be thankful that someone gave us guidance, direction, and correction rather than getting uh, our back up and resisting. Don't we all want to be like Jesus Christ? You know, it's, it's easy for us, I think, in most cases, to, to admit we're not perfect. Does anyone here have trouble if someone says, you know, well, we have a long way to go, and they say, I sure know I'm not perfect. And it's quite easy to say, well, I'm not either. Do you notice that? We, we readily say that to each other. I know I have faults and problems. Let's take it one step further. When you say that, well, I know I'm not perfect, I have problems, would you care to discuss those with me? Now, how many of you start getting uncomfortable along about there? You know, we're willing to admit we have a way to go. 
We just don't want to admit how or how much or in what way. That's where we draw the line. Then we begin to get our hackles up. Color starts coming up, you know. I don't want exposed. But man, we are sure ready to expose others, impute motives to them, uh, say things about them. That comes so easily. But when it's when we're the subject, it's a different deal. So he said, if you suffer grief wrongfully, but that's thankworthy. For what glory is it if when you are buffeted for your faults, you shall take it patiently? You know, they got you. They, they found something that was wrong and told you about it. What, what reward is there for taking that patiently? They got the right guy and they got the right problem. But if when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. You don't get any brownie points or treasure in heaven for patiently accepting what is actually true. That's what he's saying here. Now, if you're accused wrongly and you take that patiently, then you build treasure in heaven. Then you have something that is acceptable to God because you actually suffered wrongfully. Now, Christ suffered everything that he suffered wrongfully, never answered back a word. He did not get defensive. He did not try to explain how they were wrong. He just took it. He turned the other cheek. He gave his cheek to the smiters, we read. Well, that's what it means. He just turned his cheek and let them beat on him. Or even to hereunto were you called. So what I was saying, Sabbath, was not an over-dramatization on my part. Here Peter spells it out in so many words. Hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. So he had the enormity of all mankind's sins laid on his doorstep and took that patiently. And we could say, well, that was Christ, though, and he was sent here to take on the sins of the whole world so I can understand why he had to do it that way. But now when somebody jumps on my case, i got to explain how they're wrong. No, he set an example that we should follow his steps. I read 1 John 2, 6 the other day where it says that we should walk as he walked. And this says the same thing in a little bit different way. Set an example, we should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. Didn't react with any kind of passion against what was being said. And the people who accused him were absolutely dead wrong. Do we have a way to go or not? How do we react when someone accuses us? 
tells a story, be it true or untrue. What is our reaction? You know, Jesus Christ made us in his image, and we are candidates to be his bride. We are not to become unequally yoked with unbelievers as an example, and he will not become unequally yoked with an unbeliever. He will not marry anyone who is not a worthy candidate to be his bride. He just won't. So we have to come to be like he is. Now, these are hard words. Hard to follow up through on. I mean, it's, it's one thing to focus on Jesus Christ and what he did for us. But he only did it so that we could see what he did and conform to it and be like he is. Can you imagine, just in this little group we have right here tonight, if every last one of us took these words of Peter and of the other apostles and Christ himself, and we'll read some of his before we're done with this series, if we took everything that is said here absolutely to heart, and made a prodigious effort to be willing to be silent and not get defensive if someone accuses us, right or wrong, and not to accuse them of anything or to gossip or backstab or make scurrilous comments about. Now, we've all done it. If any man doesn't sin with his tongue. He's a perfect man, James says. So every last one of us have done it. And I think it's worth some time tonight to follow up that sermon to look at some other scriptures about this because it's one of the biggest problems there is in any group, including this one. We are very liberal in our opinion of others, and we're very conservative toward our own sins, toward wanting them aired. We don't want our linen aired, but we like to air others' linen. Christ simply didn't do that, and Peter, who was a very important personage in the New Testament church, followed this up and used this example. I wonder why. Why did he even bring it up? I don't think he would have even mentioned it had it not been a problem in the early New Testament church. So, if it was a problem then, these scriptures are written for us upon whom the ends of the world have come. These scriptures weren't written so much for then as they are for now. And we need to think seriously about it. He didn't threaten back, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. In other words, he just disregarded the evil or negative judgment or gossip about himself and said, I leave myself in my father's hands. He didn't do it self-righteously, and often that's the way we would do. And an expression you hear from people today is, you're not my judge. You ever hear that? Has anybody ever heard that? It's quoted quite a bit in the church. I've heard it for decades. You're not my judge. 
whether it be member to member or minister to member or member to minister or whatever. Well, that's right. But what's the attitude behind that? Someone accused you of something, whether it be an attitude, something you said, something you did. They told you that you had done, you had infringed somehow on God's way or love towards somebody else or whatever it was. And some, somehow you had done something wrong in their eyes. So instead of taking it patiently and quietly, <clears throat> we say, you're not my judge. Can't we patiently say, that may be true, it may not be true, and we have to analyze it in our own minds, and if the shoe fits, we need to wear it. And yet, on the other hand, we need to realize that God truly is our judge. But God has told you and me to judge righteous judgment, has He not? Isn't that Scripture? So, sometimes when our brothers come to us, and have something to say, we need to be able to accept that they are kings and priests in training and that they are learning righteous judgment. They may be ineffective so far. They may not have enough tact and diplomacy. They may impute motives that are not there. But still in all, we need to listen, don't we? Aren't we told to exhort one another? And so much the more as the day draws There. So we are actually instructed to guide, to lead. That's part of our duty as a Christian, is to let iron sharpen iron and try to help each other. Now, the key is try to help, not be busybodies in other people's affairs. There is a difference. But in true love, try to help one another. So that's something we're commanded to do. So you need to be very careful in how you react by saying, well, you're not my judge. Maybe instead you should be humble, because that is a prideful statement. That is a statement that is filled with pride. You're not my judge. In other words, you are not capable of being my judge because you are beneath me. That is an attitude of superiority above the one bringing the indictment. That's what it is. It is not a matter, in that case, of esteeming someone else higher than you. Because if you're humble, you will esteem their opinion very highly and you will think about it carefully. And you will apply it if you can. That's the humble road. Now, the prideful road is, you're not my judge. Who are you to correct me? That is an uppity, prideful, vain, egocentrical attitude is what it is. That's probably not a word, egocentric attitude. We need to check our reactions, if they are godly reactions or if they are human reactions. We walk by the Spirit, not by the flesh. And if we have carnal, fleshly reactions, then at that particular moment, we're walking in the flesh, not in the Spirit, because we're not reacting according to God's Spirit. 
and the fruit of his spirit were acting according to the works of the flesh. So that's the attitude he is talking about here. And he, he says, Who his own self bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness. See, we're dead to sin in the sense that his blood covered our sin. And since our sin is covered, we don't have to worry about that. We need to live toward righteousness, not sin further, in other words. For you were a sheep going astray. We were headed every direction, and the whole church right now is like sheep going astray. This is so fitting for the configuration we find ourselves in at the moment. You were a sheep going astray, but are now returned to the shepherd and bishop of your soul. The shepherd and bishop of our souls, the one who looks after us, the one who will save us, reacted in the above manner. And he says here that that is an example that we are to follow. Can you imagine the transformation if we all began to actually live up to just these five, six verses? Just those verses out of the whole Bible if every one of us concentrated, you know, you can't overcome everything at once, can you? But some of the most hurtful things that we do to one another are contained right here in these six verses of instruction in righteousness. And if we could concentrate for a while on being very, very careful about our reactions to be sure they are reactions of the Spirit, instead of actions of reactions of the flesh, and catch ourselves before we defend ourselves. That's, you know, that's just the way we are. We have this image of ourselves that we don't want cracked. Nebuchadnezzar made an image of himself, and he did not want that image tarnished in any way. In fact, when you saw that image, you're supposed to fall on your face and worship. You know we're not really any different. We have our image that we have built in our minds of what we want to be, and perhaps we have even deluded ourselves into thinking that that truly is our image. And we see ourselves differently than others see us. Every one of us does. For each one of us here, there are a lot of, right here in this room, there are a lot of different opinions about each and every one of us. A lot of different opinions. And a lot of them don't even agree one with another. Are they all right? Are they all wrong? Are all of them part right, part wrong? I mean, you, you think about your brothers in the church and... You perceive certain motivations, you perceive certain directions, you think they think a certain way, based on your experiences with human beings and others who might have been of the same type they are or whatever, uh, you assume that they fit in a certain pigeonhole. Maybe they don't. Maybe you haven't assessed them correctly. They haven't even assessed themselves correctly. God says that our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know them? We do not have the capacity to understand the intents of each other's hearts, nor do we even have the capacity to fully understand and comprehend the intents of our own hearts. 
So God ponders the heart and the intent. Even He does not make snap judgments with all the wisdom and understanding and brain power that He has. He watches us over a period of time, how we react, what we do, what we think. So He analyzes our thoughts and our intents. You wouldn't want anyone here to see all the thoughts that go through your mind. But God knows every last one of them. I was pondering that earlier today a little bit as I was driving. That we think the speed of light is very quick. It's been measured, I guess, at 186,000 feet per second, they say. And that may be accurate. Speed of light. <clears throat> How far away is God's throne? A light year is the amount of space that light covers in a year's time. How fast does a light cover a room when you flip the switch? Instant. And how far it must be to have light that came off of a star years ago and just now reaches us. Incredibly fast. And yet, compared to God's capacity to read your thoughts, that is snail slow. How many of us have gotten ourselves in a bad situation and made an instant prayer as the car went off the road or whatever to God? Oh, God, help. Or, oh God, or help with God in mind. And how many times have our lives been saved and disaster averted in each of our lifetimes? I can think of quite a few times, and I could relate to you, and you could probably do the same thing. We could spend all night doing this about the times you feel that God has intervened in your life, and sometimes instantaneously. I've seen people healed that way. I've seen people healed when we were in West Texas and I was a little kid and there was no minister around and we would either send a letter or call Pasadena and instantaneously someone was healed. I've seen it with my own eyes. Now how did that beginning of a phone call go to God and back that quickly? How can you cry out for help in a terrible situation, and God answer that fast. He is beyond our comprehension and speed of what can go as far away as his throne is and back. Now, it says if Sparrow doesn't fall, that he doesn't know it. When does he find out? Does it take 30 days for an angel to count the sparrows that fell on April the 12th, 14th, and uh, tally it all up? haul it up there to him, make the report, and come back? No. He is aware of those things apparently instantaneously. As the sparrow tumbles and falls to the ground, he is aware of it. As a thought goes through your mind, however quickly that might be, he is aware of it. See, you can't hide from God at all. How long did it take him in the Garden of Eden 
to realize what had happened with Adam and Eve. Of course, he knew it before he ever accosted them. But all it took was one look at their face. How is it with your kids? You can read their mind instantly in some cases. They're reaching in the cookie jar when you come in. And you know instantly what they're thinking. You know instantly what their reaction is going to be. They're going to get defensive and they're going to try to find some excuse as quickly as possible to let you know that they weren't doing what they were doing that is going to get them in trouble. You can read their mind. You know exactly what they're thinking. They don't even have to be reaching in the cookie jar. All they have to do is standing there in the kitchen looking south, and you know. God's the same way with us, only more so. He can read expressions. He can read looks. You can't hide it. So this is very, very valuable information for us here because, and I'm, I'm not getting honest. All I'm doing is trying to educate us or remind us at least of what our reaction should be and how we should treat one another. And I, I think we have a long way to go to reach the standard that Jesus Christ lived and set an example for us to follow. But if we would all really, really go to work on this one, uh, things would be a whole lot better around here than they are. I'm not saying that they're all that bad. Once in a while, somebody will make a comment, well, there's no love. Well, I don't buy that. I don't buy that at all. Poor Will McPherson this morning. Started pouring concrete, and one of his forms blew out at the bottom. Concrete running every direction but where he wanted it to. It wasn't very long till there were six, eight people down there helping him out. We don't like him, but we love him, I guess. <laughs> Not true. But, you know, it isn't just an emotion. Uh, it's do people help one another, serve one another, do for one another. And I see that around here day after day after day people working hours and hours and hours for other people. So the proof is in the pudding, not in the words. And there's an awful lot of service that is done here without pay, without thanks, by dozens of people. And to me, that shows the love of God in works and in action as opposed to in words. Now, the word in the the hug is fine, and that might show some emotion, but it is emotion that should be true emotion that is generated from the works of love, the acts of love that occur. I kind of joked with Will this morning. I said, well, you got a problem here. Be you warmed and filled, and gave him a hug, said, see you later. You know, now I could say I loved him, but if I'd have walked off, I couldn't have proved it. So I stayed a few minutes. But no, there were a lot of people down there that just came when they heard there was a problem. Man, they were there. Took care of it. Just don't have any more of those. <laughs> no, we all have them. It's just part of life. It, it, it just occurs. But 
I'm thankful we have a group of people here that are willing. You know, they'll drop whatever they're doing. They're willing to help. And I'm saying this as a compliment. You know, we, we get banged on a lot, but there is an awful lot of love here. And we need to build on it. And this is one way we can show it is being careful with our tongues. You know, we can help with our hands, but then we need to help with our tongues too. Say good things if you can. If you can't, don't say anything. The rule of thumb my grandmother and your grandmother always told us. Can't say anything good about somebody, don't say anything. Good rule. She told me that a lot, and I didn't fully buy it. I thought it was a good idea, but I have infringed upon her instruction many, many times in my life. So I'm going to work on it. I hope we all will. Now let's turn this just a little bit. Uh, I want to go back to Matthew 18. Matthew 18. This is our group self-help self self-help program tonight. I'll spit it out. <clears throat> We're addressing one of our needs. And this is this is a service to keep on a day of unleavened bread to help get sin out of our lives and make us holy and righteous before God. This is an issue that we can use to help one another. Now we're all here. We I think everyone here would like to see everyone else here in the kingdom of God. I think that's safe to say. We don't want each of us to be there the way we are, but we want each to overcome and grow and be there to make it. I've said frequently that if I had to live forever like I presently am, I'll pass. I would not want to live forever in this state with my mind and my emotions and my mouth and my hands the way they are. Just, you know, let's just forego that. I'd rather die than live forever like this. I only want to live forever if I can be absolutely transformed, be totally different than I am today. And I believe that God can and will do that. That our carnal, human, deceitful minds, our tongues, can be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we shall be changed. Not just from physical to spirit and body, but in mind. And all those downward pulls in the wrong directions our minds want to go now will be turned and be uplifting. That would be a startling experience for each and every one of us to always have positive, uplifting thoughts. I, I can't even grasp that. And I figure... You know, you've lived with yourself long enough and you know yourself and you know your negative attitudes and your depressions and your self-pity and your all the things that are human. The things that we grapple with. The things we feel ashamed and guilty about when we get into a talk like this. And it's not pleasant. Who would want to live forever like this? And I think, how could God change that? This is almost, you know, you work on it year after year, decade after decade, and you still, sometimes you don't feel like you've made a whole lot of progress. And I think, how could God change that so that it is 
right and good and perfect and mature. It, and it's beyond my imagination to grasp how he can do that. And yet I look at the creation around me, at the beauty of a flower, a tree, a deer, a human being, all of billions of things that God has made on this earth, stars, the sky, grass. And I can see that if anybody could make that, then he must be able to do the things he says he will do in this book. To me and to you. He must be capable of it, or he couldn't have done all these things that are so pleasant to us. How could something be so delicious that comes out of the back end of a chicken? God has designed it. You know, go out and pick a fresh tomato and pop it in your mouth off the vine. It's incredible. Somebody can make a tomato or an egg or any of these billions of things has to have the capacity to create in us a beautiful, perfect mind. And that's why Romans says, you see him through the things that he has created. Wind's getting up. I hope it brings rain. Anyway, let's go into a few of these scriptures. Chapter 18 of Matthew. At the same time came the disciples to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, you want to be the greatest? Remember Muhammad Ali, Cassius Clay he used to be before he became the greatest? And he made millions of dollars, not as much by his fighting prowess as by his mouth. He became famous because he could talk about how great he was. I am the greatest, he would say. Wouldn't it be nice to be great? I mean, truly great, not weak and base as we are. So the disciples came and said, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, this is an incredible insight Christ is about to give. Incredible insight. If you want to be great and adjudged great by those in heaven, by our Father and our brother and husband-to-be, their judgment is the only one that really matters. Christ said, or Peter said that Christ committed himself to the Father who truly is the ultimate judge. If you want to be great, here's the formula right here. Now, we've always we've wanted to be great in the church. We've wanted position. People have clamored for positions. I don't see as much of it now as I used to because we saw the futility of that, I think. But it's still all, in all of us to want to have our say, to have our way, to have our influence on others. Whether or not we're truly seeking a position or not, we still want our influence to count. And that isn't wrong necessarily if our influence is a right influence. But we have to be careful. But it is not wrong to want a high position and to be reckoned great in the kingdom of God. Jesus called a little child to him and set it in the middle of them and said, Truly I say to you, except you be converted, changed, transformed, that's what the word means, and become as little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. <coughs> Whosoever, therefore, shall humble himself as that little child, 
the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So even though we might want to be considered highly in God's eyes, and that's not wrong of itself, at the same time we should be so happy to be a doorkeeper there, as David explained about his attitude. So this echoes what James was saying we read the other day in James 4 about how God resists the proud and gives grace, pardon, good favor to those who are humble, who do not rise up in vanity, ego, and self. Now, this isn't anything great and new, but it's basic to what we're here for. It's the key, in other words, to finding favor with God, is to have a humble attitude. And that's something we have to work at from moment to moment, or work at from moment to moment, every day of our lives. There are any number of opportunities every day for you to be prideful or humble, because you will come in contact with quite a few people every day of your life, and they will say things, and you will either act in pride, one-upmanship, or in humility. Now, that doesn't mean we can't kid each other and rid each other. I mean, that, that helps the world go round uh, if we can laugh at each other and laugh at ourselves, as long as it's gentle and kind-hearted and not mean. If it's mean-spirited, then it's wrong. If it's gentle kidding and exhortation toward goodness and laughing about each other and with each other, that's fine. I don't see any problem with that. Uh, and Christ even used it himself at times, uh, humor and even a little sarcasm. When he was speaking of Herod, he said, you tell that fox. Well, Herod was sly, like a fox. He was an Edomite. And they, they the nickname of Edomites was foxes. So he may have said that with a little levity, might have said it with a little sarcasm. I don't know I wasn't there because sarcasm, you know, you can make a statement and print it, and printed, you could not see the look on the face or the sound of the way the words were used, like you can in person. Uh, it's easier to judge if it's made, if that comment is made audibly, you can see the person's face, whether it is mean-spirited or, spirited or whether it was said in jest and good humor and love. But if it's in print, it's hard to determine what the attitude behind it was. Everything all goes back to attitude. The words you speak might be right or wrong depending on the attitude you have when you speak them. But we have any number of cases where we can take the low road or the high road. We can react in vanity or in humility. And we have to be converted. And in any given day, probably every one of us will react sometimes in pride and ego, and sometimes we'll catch ourselves and react in humility. So you get... Plenty of practice at this. You never lack for opportunity to practice doing what God tells us to do here. Verse 5, And whoso shall receive one such little child in my name receives me. So if we are meek and humble and we train ourselves to be that way and choose to be that way daily, momentarily, then anyone who receives that attitude and does not look down upon it is also received of Christ. But 
whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me. So he's saying, if you offend one of Christ's children, one that believes in him, a brother in the church, if you offend one of them, it were better that you have a millstone hanged around your neck and be thrown in the depths of the sea. Now that's God's assessment of the pride, vanity, as opposed to humility scenario. That is how God looks at it. How often do we offend? Sometimes we offend without even trying or not even knowing it. Of course, there's two sides to that coin. It says, if we love God's law there in Psalm, what is it, verse 165? So 119, 165. If we take offense, or no, if we have God's law, nothing will offend us. That's what I'm trying to spit out. Now, the amount that you love God's law determines how often you are offended. There's always definitions that we can fall back on. You know, we're trying to assess our attitude and whether or not we really love God's law. It's easy to say, I love God's law. It is ever with me. We sing it. Oh, how love I thy law. It is ever with me. Thy commands make me wiser, and so on. We can say that. We can sing that. But how often do we get offended? How easily are we offended? How thin-skinned are we? That is the true judge, according to God's Word, of how humble we are and how much we love God's law. And God's law is love. This is the love of God, that you keep the commandments. Commandment keeping is very central to Christian life. We'll get into that in a different series fairly soon that ends up talking about law and grace and what part they play. And the world basically says law or grace, and they do not understand that it requires that both are required for salvation. And I can prove that in the Scripture and shall. But if we take offense, we do not love God's law. Or that shows how much we do or do not. If we give offense, it shows how much we love our neighbor as ourselves or not. It's easy to say, you offended me. You made me mad. You made me angry. I'm upset with you. You shouldn't have said what you said about me. Well, you took offense. If you have that reaction, you took offense. You did not turn the other cheek. Woe to the world because of offenses. Christ is going to bring the first, the second, and the third woe on the world because of offenses. For it must needs be that offenses come, but woe to the man by whom the offense comes. Wherefore, if your hand or your foot offend you, cut them off and cast them from you. It is better for you to enter into the life halt or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. If your eye offend you, pluck it out, cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. Does that mean we ought to literally pluck our eyes out or cut our hands or feet off? No. 
But what is offensive spiritually, and he's talking spiritually here. He's talking about being converted here. What your eye sees is what becomes offensive by what your mind thinks as a result of what the eye saw. What your hand does is what is offensive. It isn't the hand. You know, you look at your hand. Look at your hand. It isn't offensive, is it? It's part of you. It's pretty handy. Handy. Where'd that word came come from? Good thing to have, hands. Hands don't always do good things, though, do they? It is possible to sin greatly with your hands. So whatever those hands do that is unrighteous and ungodly is what has to be cut out. Not the hand that is part of the body, because the rest of the body will hurt. It is what you bring into your mind with your eyes that's bad. That's why it says in Isaiah, see no evil, hear no evil. And we have to be very, very careful what we allow our eyes to see and our ears to hear. Now, it's easy to jump on the television on that because it's so obvious. But how often do we listen to other people who have negative attitudes, testy attitudes, uh, bad attitudes toward someone, and we're willing to commiserate with them. We're willing to listen to them. Sometimes we even take on the negativity that they have. Now, when you are listening to someone speaking evil of someone else, you are bound by baptism and your commitment to think like Christ. You are bound by your vow to God not to listen to that. It's one thing to say we shouldn't gossip or we shouldn't say negative things. We shouldn't spread our bad attitudes. It's easy to say that. But let's put it in the context of these scriptures. When God says, hear no evil, see no evil, he means it. We have no right to listen to someone run down another human being made in the image of God. God created each and every human being in His image so that they might someday conform to His mind and be a part of His kingdom as holy, righteous beings forever. And we need to think like that because that's what God's Word says. You are disobeying God when you listen to someone talk negatively. What should you do? Embarrass them by changing the subject? Obviously changing the subject? Yes. Can we talk about something else? If they persist, you can get up and walk out. You can walk away. How many of us have the character, the spiritual power, the strength, the godly mind to do that? 
we're afraid we'll hurt their feelings by walking out on their stinking rotten attitude. <laughs> what? Why should that matter? Maybe that's a good way to let them know that that is not the way things should be. You see, it's called peer pressure. Peer pressure is as strong as anything. You've seen peer pressure with your kids. You were a kid, and you had peer pressure exerted upon you. You know, to say, well, Daryl or Gordon or Nelson said we shouldn't listen to that. Then you're just quoting us, but it's far more effective if you say, God tells me not to listen to this kind of talk, and I'm not going to. It's not a matter of Nelson's or Gordon's or Daryl's belief. I believe this because God tells me this. That's far more effective. I'm not going to listen to you because God tells me not to. Now, if they're willing to have that kind of attitude, they should not be allowed to spread it. Birds of a feather tend to flock together. You'll notice that people who have a negative attitude generally will spend time with people who have the same type of attitude, who they know will listen to them, who will be sympathetic to it, or at least give an ear to hear. And it's ungodly. It's wrong. Woe to the man by whom the offense comes. Verse 10, Take heed that you despise not one of these little ones. We are not allowed by this Scripture to despise one another, to run each other down, which is what despise is, to speak negative about. For I say to you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven, for the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. Now, somebody may have some serious problems and they might be in danger of being lost. Does it help them to hear, if they're already down, frustrated, does it help them to hear that everyone is against them, that everyone's talking behind their back? How does that help them? Does it help them out of their funk to hear that? I really rather doubt it. Jesus Christ said the way that men would know we were his disciples is if we loved one another. I think this Passover season is a time to be very, very basic in our approach to what true Christianity really is all about. It isn't new. It isn't exciting. It isn't prophetic. It isn't something we don't on some level know or haven't thought about or heard before. But if we're not doing something, what good does it do to know it? We have to remind one another, exhort one another. And it's my duty and job to let myself and you know where we fall short of the standard of Jesus Christ. How he walked, how he thought, and therefore how we must walk and how we must think. How, think, how do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them be gone astray, 
Does he not leave the ninety-nine and go into the mountains and seek that which has gone astray? And if so be that he find it, truly I say to you, he rejoices more of that sheep than of the ninety-nine which went not astray. He's concerned about the one that he almost lost. And we should be that concerned with each other. Especially when our, in our estimation, in our judgment, that one might be nearly lost. And it's easy for human beings to write each other off. But Christ doesn't write us off that way. He said he'll never leave us nor forsake us. We write him off. We leave and forsake him and his way. That's one thing to give lip service to God and say, I love the Lord. But the Pharisees did that. They cleaned the outside of the cup so they could look good to those around them, and the inside remained filthy. We cannot afford that because God does not look on outside appearances. There are many scriptures to show that. He looks upon the heart, and he judges the intent and the thoughts of the heart. When will we live up to verse 15? Well, let's see. I didn't read verse 14. Even so, it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. And if we have any part in causing a little one to falter, maybe fail, and perish, you might as well just tie a big rock around your neck and jump in the sea. That's what God says. Moreover, if your brother shall trespass against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. You don't run tattletale to the minister. You don't run and tell your best friend. If he commits something or does something, says something that you find fault with, we are to go and tell him alone, mano a mano. You know what? Verse 15 of Matthew 18 is very rarely kept. It is very rarely followed. It's instruction from Jesus, the Messiah, God Himself. And it is not a difficult Scripture. It's not subject to misinterpretation. It's not bad Greek here, bad translation. Very simple, straightforward, undeniably correct statement from the Lord Jesus. Someone has a fault between or trespasses against you. Go to him alone. doesn't say he necessarily trespasses against somebody else, but against you. You're to go to him. And if he shall hear you, you've gained your brother. If he will not hear you, then take two, one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. Sometimes we misunderstand each other. Sometimes we need someone else to hear it. But you aren't always right either. You may think they committed a fault, and they may not have. It may just seem like it to you. So it's got to be judged who was at fault. Of course, it was always the other guy that was at fault. It wasn't you. 
If you were the one at fault, you wouldn't be going to him, would you? So in your mind, you're always justified. But we're also cowards, and we're afraid to do these things. Some people are aggressive. Some people will have personalities that are overbearing. They'll just flat run over you. So who are you who hardly speaks ten words in one day to go to somebody that does nothing but talk? You know, and just get absolutely stomped into the ground because they're aggressive and outgoing and pushy and loud or whatever they might be. It's hard for somebody who has a milder personality. I didn't say necessarily meek, but you can be you can be quiet and proud. But it's a matter of personality a lot of times. And there are personalities that will override other personalities. So is the issue ever really heard or is somebody just steamrolled? That happens a lot. So it's hard sometimes to go to someone. We have to swallow our own pride and humbly and meekly pray and go to them and be sure we're not there to prove them wrong, but we're there to gain our brother. I have tried in my life, I don't always succeed at it, but I've always tried, if I get upset or angry with someone, to wait two or three days before I even approach them so that I have time to cool off, to get my mind straight, to pray about it, and be sure that I'm approaching them not to prove them wrong and to get my way, but to gain my brother. See, it's all about attitude again. You have to take the time to be sure you're going there for the right reason, not to put them down, get rid of them, punish them, make them feel bad, but to repair the relationship. When our relationship with God isn't right, don't we get on our knees and try to repair that so that we can be friends with Christ? He offered us friendship there in John. We read it the other night. We want that friendship to be strong. But there's some people you could care less about being friends with. Just, that's just the human way it is. Some people you'd like to be friends with. Others you could care less because you don't have something in common or you're not birds of a feather either positively or negatively or whatever it might be. If he shall neglect to hear them, tell it to the church. See, it's, you want to handle something on the smallest possible stage you can. That's love, just with each other. If you can solve a problem on that level, that's the best way. If you have to bring two or three more into it, that is not as good. There is more opportunity for you and your cronies to get together and gang up on somebody. And that isn't always good, and it's hard to keep it positive. So settle it on the smallest stage possible. It could be it's just your attitude, and you need to go in and pray to God and get over your attitude. Or if there's a real infraction, go to that person alone, and if it cannot be solved on that level, take it on up to two or three. And if that doesn't solve it, if you'll neglect to hear them, tell it to the church. But if you neglect to hear the church, let him be unto you as a heathen man and a publican. And then he talks about whatever they bound on earth being bound in heaven. 
Now, he's not talking here to us as uh, let's say having a public meeting. You've got a congregation of 500. We've got to call all 500 people in and tell this problem to them. Now, is that a stage you want a, an infraction, especially that yours aired in? I got a public whipping one time in Imperial School. Everybody was there from first grade to twelfth grade, all the teachers, the principal, the minister of the church, some of us boys being boys and not being the right kind of boys at that moment, had our fannies blistered right in front of everybody. And then we were on janitor duty for a whole semester while everybody else was playing volleyball or basketball. We were running the mop bucket around the volleyball court or the basketball court, headed to the bathroom to clean toilets while everybody else got to play basketball. Now, that may not seem like a big deal to you, but the 14, 15-year-old boy, that's a big deal. That basketball is a big deal. And cleaning toilets is a big deal, too. Not a deal that you like. Especially when you know everybody is watching you with that mop bucket. And if they're not watching you, you still think they are. Every one of them is looking at you as you go by. Ain't no doubt about it in your mind. Is that what he's really saying here? If you got 500 in the congregation, take it to the church. or people would interpret this that way. I don't think so. He's talking to the disciples here, primarily those who were in the ministry. And we have those in the church who have oversight of us, as is said in Hebrews. And the church is representative of the mother. And God has appointed elders, ministers in the church to do the administration of the church. That is easily proved. So, you don't take it to the minister, which is our proclivity, because why? We want somebody else to do our dirty work. We'd rather somebody else skewer someone than us having to do it ourselves. That's the wrong approach. Go to the person one-on-one, -on -one, solve it if you can, get rid of the offense, Become brothers together again. If that doesn't work, take two or three. Keep it as small as you can. A thing has to be established in the Bible by two or three witnesses, not ten or more. Two or three witnesses establish a matter. You're not to even accuse an elder without at least two witnesses. How many times have we committed that infraction? Or no, it says you're not to even hear a matter against an elder without two or more witnesses. In other words, your word against his means nothing to God and should not in the church. You've got to have at least two people that saw it before it could even be brought up. God wants things handled on the lowest form or stage possible. So if you've tried it yourself, you've taken two or three witnesses to establish a matter, then you take it to the ministry and ask them to handle it. Wouldn't it be better? Just think about it logically for a moment, those who might misuse this. Because he did not tell the church congregation 
that whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. He gave the ministry the right to make certain decisions. And he told Peter and the apostles to be that he gave them that power. He did not give it to the whole church. Would you rather something be handled privately and quietly with maybe an elder or a minister? Or would you rather it be marched out on the stage in front of five or six hundred people? I think that goes without saying, really. If you've done something, you don't like it brought before everybody. You'd like it handled as quietly and privately as possible. I've had a public whipping or two. I never did like it. Never did like it at all. Sometimes you have to be patient with it. And what good did it do when we got our little public whipping there in Imperial School? What would have good it would have done if we'd have rebelled and said, we didn't do that. It's false accusation. And gotten mad at the principal and gotten mad at the teachers and got mad at the rat that got us in trouble. The wrath that got us in trouble was not the wrath that got us in trouble. The wrath that got us in trouble was us. You know, we always blame the rat. Well, you shouldn't have told. Well, you shouldn't have done it, so somebody could tell it. You know, our, our thinking is askew so often. And then Peter said, my brother sinned against me. How many times should I forgive him? A lot of us are not even willing to forgive once, are we? I remember not too many years ago hearing a man say, I can't forgive that man. I, I can't and I won't. Now, what kind of an attitude is that? Is that the kind of attitude that will get him in the kingdom of God? Yet how many times have we had an attitude toward somebody and we're just simply not willing to get over it? I remember a business partner that did me dirty. Believe me, it took a long time for Christianity to win out on that I pondered different ways of getting even on my bed. I pounded my pillow. I thought of very many ingenious ways of killing the rascal. I had a truly bad attitude, because he'd truly done me wrong. And I was far from having the attitude of Jesus Christ, frankly. And it was a battle royal for me to repent of that attitude. I finally got over it, but it took some doing. I was not righteous immediately. It is a conversion process. Now, I just cite an example that comes to mind. You can probably think a lot of things in your life where you've had trouble getting over something. Somebody said something about you, somebody did something about to you, and you took offense, and it was a deep offense. Look at Esau. Not only he would not, could not get over it, but he sought it carefully with tears. He would not go to God and truly want to get over it. You know, you've got to want to overcome something before you can. 
you have to pray for the desire to overcome. Because sometimes we are fond of our attitude. And we want to maintain it. And if we have a sin, it might be our favorite sin. And we don't really want to overcome it. We're in the position we wish we wanted to. I wish I wanted to overcome that, to be honest. But I don't really want to. So you have to be converted to the point that you actually want to overcome it. Then you will. But not until. <coughs> what time is it? <coughs> well, Christ told him, you got to forgive 70 times 7. That's 400. And he's talking about in one day. Isn't it? Isn't it one day? No, it doesn't say one day. <coughs> not right there anyway. you willing to forgive somebody the same offense 490 times? Seven times 70? Somebody comes up and slaps you alongside the head and said, I hate you. Oh, man. Turn the other cheek. You going to turn it 490 times? I don't know whether you'd still be standing. <laughs> the point is infinity. That's the point. We should always be willing to forgive. I would say that every one of us here has weaknesses. We may have varying weaknesses based on which person we're talking about. As a human herd, we tend to have pretty much the same things. You know, there's a, there's a spectrum there that's only so wide of things that we have problems with. So we are all an amalgamation of various strengths and weaknesses, and some of them overlap and some may not. But how many times on that basis have you asked God to have mercy and forgive you when you've committed that same offense hundreds, maybe thousands of times over the last number of years? something you have not overcome, something you still deal with, and you do it again, or think it again, or whatever it is, and you ask God to forgive you for it. Now, each time, wouldn't you like for Him to do that? When do you reach the point where you say, Lord, I don't care if you forgive me or not? If you reach that point, you're very close to the unpardonable sin because you don't care anymore. As long as you care, you have not committed the unpardonable sin. And if you can go to God and ask Him, Father, forgive me, I've sinned. You and I have done it with whatever weaknesses we might have year after year after year after year. Because the areas we tend to weak, be weak in, we tend to continue to be weak in. And we have to become strong in those areas. But if, if we really truly want to be part of the kingdom of God, we go to God pretty frequently. Maybe every day, maybe several times a day for the very same offense and ask forgiveness. And we always hope 
that he will answer positively and say, I forgive you, my son. Now, that is the mind and attitude and the standard that Christ sets for us with each other. That we always be willing to forgive, and that means not to carry a grudge. Isn't there a scripture that says, let not the sun go down on your anger? How long do you hold your anger? An hour? A day? A week? A month? A year? Are you still angry? over things your parents did maybe 40 years ago, 50, 60 years ago? Are you still upset about what a brother or a sister did to you 20, 30, 40 years ago? Are you still mad at what your ex-wife or husband did to you 20 years ago? There are certain subjects I dare say you husbands can bring up and your wife will have an elephant memory about. She has not turned loose of it and it's 30 years old. Thankfully, I haven't been married that long, so I'm not talking about me on that one. And our wives could be the same way. Didn't Paul say, don't be bitter men against your wives? Yes, he did. Don't be bitter against them. It must be a male tendency to become bitter against a wife. So don't do it. Now, we want forgiven, but sometimes we hold grudges a long, long time. If, if you get angry at someone, and it is okay to be angry at sometimes, be angry but sin not. God gets angry but does not sin in so doing. When he sees sin, he sees wrong. It's okay to get angry. But it is against God's will, against his attitude, for us to remain angry beyond sunset. There's another proof, by the way, against those people who say the day begins at dawn. The day ends at sunset. God says, don't let a day end and you still be angry at somebody. So if you really want to hold a grudge, get really ticked off right after sundown. You know? you got 23 hours to baby your attitude. But you are violating the standard set by God in His Word if you keep that anger beyond sundown. Now, truly, He would be more pleased if you got over it quicker than that. But that's the benchmark He sets. Get over it before the day ends. Do not start another day angry at someone. Now, God says in the book of Lamentations, that we have renewal every morning. We go to bed, or at the end of the day, maybe we pray, maybe we think about the day and the wrong attitudes we've had during the day, and we ask God to forgive us, and we get our sleep and rest, and we wake up, and He gives us a new dawn. He gives us a new opportunity to go through the daylight part of that day with the right attitude and without sinning. And he knows we're going to sin every day, but he forgives us and gives us a new start in his mind, in his attitude, every day. Do we do that for each other? Or do we bear animosity, anger, and grudges day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year? That's our tendency. It's wrong. 
Now, we're here for these days of unleavened bread to put sin out of our lives. And I am bound and determined to help us recognize sin, to recognize what standard that God requires of us. Because if you don't know what the standard is, you're not, you, don't have a, you don't have a prayer of reaching it if you don't understand what it is. You know, you, have you ever tried to jump across a creek or a ditch and you wanted to assess how wide it was before you made the attempt? Can I stand here and jump this? Do I need to get a running start to jump it? Or can I do it at all? So you'll, you'll calculate that because you don't want to land in the water and in the rocks and fall back in the water. You want to make it across. Now, we were supposed to do that before we were ever baptized. We were supposed to assess how wide the river was and whether we could make that leap of faith to live up to the standard and the commitment that we were making. And once we put our hand to the plow, we couldn't turn back. So we need to review and be sure how wide the river is. We need to be sure what we are trying to do. And I'll guarantee you, we are facing a jump here that is impossible for us to make. Look at yourself tonight, having examined yourself before the Passover and supposedly continuing to do so today. Look at yourself and see just how much you lack when we compare ourselves to these standards we've been reading about tonight. Do you think you can jump this? No, you can't. But in Christ Jesus, I can do everything. Of myself, I can do how much? Nothing. But through Jesus Christ and the power of God, we can do it. I cannot walk on water. I may have to walk through it going home, but I can't walk on it. Peter, with his eye on Christ, literally walked on water. And it was not invisible ice, I guarantee you. He did it. And when he looked at himself and he looked at the waves, he couldn't do it. We've got to learn to walk on water, spiritually. Whether we ever do physically or not is neither here nor there. But we've got, if it's too far to jump, you've got to walk on the water, don't you? I'm challenging us tonight to walk on water. To go to Jesus Christ with your faults, your weaknesses, your lacks, and how far we fall below the standard that we've read about tonight and we'll continue to read about in some different areas. And make the walk. Talking the talk doesn't do any good. You've got to walk on the water. That's what we have to do. So I know that what I'm doing today is setting, or tonight, is setting a standard before you. And I didn't set it. I've just been reading scriptures where God set the standard. It's right here, every word of it. He sets a standard, and we have to do whatever is necessary to live up to the standard. And that is to go to Him with our whole heart, with our entire commitment, 
and rend our heart and not our garments, turn ourselves over to Him, and work at overcoming. And walk in faith, knowing that it can be done through Him. It cannot be done on our own. That is the challenge that is before us. So I'm going to close there for tonight. I didn't even get through but one scripture. But there's an awful lot here in this Matthew 18 that we need to work on. And we've got to go to God to do it. So if I've upset you tonight, you've got till tomorrow evening sundown to get over it. See you tomorrow.